You are now listening to the January 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. It's Terry from Near My God to Thee, where we look at the background of a hymn and reflect upon the meaning of the hymn in a deeper way. If we were able to see the spiritual path which God has laid for us, it would be less difficult path to walk. Most of the time, our spiritual path is a path of darkness where we can't see what's ahead of us. We may wonder, am I on the right path? We may ask, is there even a path? Many times we are faced with this difficulty. During times such as these, how do we walk down such a path? In our spiritual journey, we will face such a situation. However, through the life of one person of faith, we will see what kind of confession we can give. In today's Near My God to Thee, we will look at the story of John Henry Newman, who wrote the hymn, Lead Kindly Light. First, we'll listen to the hymn. John Henry Newman, who wrote Lead Kindly Light, was a pastor who was born in London, England in 1801. He was the leader of the Oxford Movement, which opposed the English government interfering with the church. He opposed the nation interfering with the church and asserted independence. He was getting exhausted, and in 1833, he had to recuperate from a disease. Pastor John Newman opposed the government and became a leader for the independence of the church. He suffered from an illness and had to recuperate. He went to the island of Sicily in Italy to recuperate. When he went to the island of Sicily to recuperate, he had a severe fever and was bedridden for three weeks. The Italian nurse believed he had no hope of surviving. Therefore, the nurse spoke to him one day. Pastor Newman, I'm sorry to say this, but in my opinion, I believe it will be difficult for you to recover. Therefore... While you're still conscious, it would be good for you to write a will. Pastor Newman answered the nurse, who said those words. Thank you for your honesty. However, I'm not going to die right now. It's because God has planned something for me to do in England. But before I can do God's work, he has punished me with this fever to humble me, since I am always so stubborn and arrogant. Once the Lord's punishment is over, I will soon get better. Just as he said, after a while, John Newman began to recover. Then he made preparations to return to England. However, it was not easy to get a boat heading for England. In his hurry to return to England, he rode a cargo ship carrying fruit to France instead of riding a boat going to England. When the cargo ship which sailed with the wind arrived in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, the wind suddenly disappeared. 
When the wind disappeared, the ship stopped moving. In the area with no wind, there was nothing they could do. One day passed, two days passed, and time was just passing by. As one week passed, John Newman began to realize that he couldn't do anything without the Lord leading him. I may just die in the middle of the sea without being able to do anything. Humans are worthless beings. Oh, Lord, you are the kind light. Lord, without you, I cannot move one step. Please, lead me. I now realize that I must look to you alone. He got down on his knees and confessed his weakness. While he was seeking God's leading, he momentarily thought of the scripture in the book of Psalms. It was Psalm chapter 107, verse 13 through 14. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. John Newman began to write about his repentance of trying to do ministry with his own effort. He asked the Lord to lead him one step at a time. Lead, kind of light, amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on, the night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on, keep thou my feet, I do not ask to see. The distance seen, one step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I loved to choose, and see my path, but now, lead thou me on. I loved the garish day, and spite of fears, Pride ruled my will. Remember not the past years. So long thy power hath blessed me. Sure it still will lead me on, O'er moor and fen, O'er crag and torrent, Till the night is gone. And with the morn those angel faces smile, Which I have loved long since, And lost a while. We think that we could do something on our own. The world tells us that if we can imagine something, it will happen. However, we must realize one thing. We cannot do anything without God's work and God's leading. John Newman realized this through his illness, his fever, and passing through the middle of the Mediterranean Sea where there was no wind. If God doesn't give us strength, if God doesn't make the wind blow, we cannot go one step forward. Therefore, we must depend on the Lord who is the light and our strength and walk our spiritual path together with Him. When we walk that path one step at a time, just as John Newman confessed, the night is gone and with the morn those angel faces smile which I have loved long since and lost a while.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Peacemakers. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Here's the first thing that we're going to see this morning. That's this. Happier the peacemakers. Happier the peacemakers. Now, here's the inconvenient truth that we're confronted with in this text immediately as we look at it. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are the the comfortable. I kind of wish that he would say that because that makes more sense, right? Sounds true. But that's not what he says. See, here what we find is, is that Jesus actually says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's not saying here, happy are those who protect their peace at all costs. This isn't kind of an advertisement for the lifestyle of those ascetic monks who try to sort of uh, separate themselves from others to help them be more holy. It's, it's not like uh, that doctrine of a number of Anabaptist churches who would say that what you need to do is be kind of a pacifist, not enter into war, but stay separate from it so that you can be more holy and please God and experience the kind of peace that Jesus calls us to. Now, I do think that there is a passive nature to peacemaking. And it's this, it's in the sense that we are striving to live at peace with all men. That means in the way that we are slow to speak. We're listening and thinking about what people say. We're not just looking to overpower them with our thoughts or our words or our rhetoric, but we really do need to seek to understand. We need to be slow to speak, which I think means not a, you know, just sort of blowing up on someone, but I think it also means we're trying to be more careful and precise with the words that we're using when we're talking to others so that we don't blow up people needlessly. We're slow to, to anger, slow to anger because those things do not bring forth the righteousness of God. But Jesus here, I think, is also calling for a peacemaking that goes beyond that. It's a kind of active peacemaking. In other words, there is a a kind of lifestyle, an initiative that you need to take to be able to honor God and honor Christ and his calling to be a peacemaker. So what does a peacemaker do? I think it's someone who at base level is seeking reconciliation between persons who are fighting or where there are factions that exist. They're fighting for unity and peace and joy and harmony. You know, peacemakers, they, they don't relish fights. They're not someone who says, I'm going to jump in here and we're going to make you be happy and peaceful. But they also don't avoid conflict to insulate themselves from their own sense of peace and well-being. They take initiative to reconcile broken relationships. Now let me give you three handles for thinking about peacemaking this morning. And then I'll give you some some quick applications. 
Uh, let me just say this. Uh, this is going to be imperfect, and you need to build on this yourselves uh, in your community groups, in your quiet times, as you're thinking about what it means to be a peacemaker. But let me get us started in thinking about this. First, peacemaking isn't our default setting. Can we just affirm that? Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like the older I get, the more I realize just how bad I am at making peace and how much harder I have to work at it. See, when Adam fell in the garden, we're told that he immediately blamed Eve, his wife, and God, right? It's, it's the woman that you gave me. And the very next chapter, we find that there's friction in the family again when Cain kills his brother Abel. Peace clearly is not our manufacturer's default setting. It's not like our standard operating system. And some of us are further away from that. Fights and factions look more natural to humanity because of sin. I believe that if you were to read through the Old Testament and you were to look at the people of God in the Old Testament, you could have found at any point many examples of the kind of fleshly peace killers that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, 19 to 20 as he's calling out the works of the flesh. And notice these specific ones that he says are peace killers. He speaks of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, etc. And he goes on to say, I warn you as I warned you before, catch that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now just think about that. Fits of anger, strife, jealousy, divisions, envy. Does those, those sound somewhat familiar? Familiar culturally? Familiar politically? Maybe familiar familial in your own home? But ask yourself, are there ways that you are encouraging friction and fractions rather than peace? See, fights and disagreements, I think they should really serve as an occasion where all of us stop to take note of our own hearts. Now, there was in those moments, let's just assume there's something to be learned in that situation. And we need to consider our, our words, our actions, and the heart behind those words and actions, and whether or not we are really peacemakers or peacebreakers at root. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Not a small theological truth. Don't miss this. Hebrews 13.20 and Romans 15.33 both call God what? The God of peace. Jesus was prophesied as the one who would be the prince of peace. We find that the Holy Spirit has come to give us a fruit of what? Peace. It is a spiritual fruit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are for and about peace, a kind of kingdom that is unlike this kingdom. Jesus is the one who inaugurated a covenant of peace for his people. Our king came and died for us on a cross to usher in a new kind of covenant with a new kind of community that was grounded in a kind of peace that is not from this world, that is manipulative and suppressive, but that is from heaven. One that pierces to the heart. See, Jesus is the one who died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for you and me. It is only through him that we have peace with God. I love in Ezekiel 37, we have a vision of 
God sending his prophet. And he puts words in his mouth and he speaks them over this valley of dry bones. You remember that, that great and glorious text about the bones coming to life and creating an exceedingly great army where only death had been. And then he places his spirit within them. And in Ezekiel 37, 26, he makes this promise about this future that has come. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. It will not die with Solomon. It will go on forever. I believe Wellam and Gentry are helpful in Kingdom Through Covenant. When they say that this is speaking of the same thing that Jeremiah saw, a day when there would be a new covenant which promises new hearts. It would be an eternal covenant and a kind of covenant that would be a covenant of peace. See, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who laid down his life as a substitution for you and me. We who had nothing but wrath and division from God so that we might be brought near to him. He died in our place on the cross for rebels filled with enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, pride, and the list goes on. He died for us. He didn't die for beautiful, peaceful, happy people. He died for people who hated God. See, Jesus took the eternal just wrath of God that we deserved and gave us this covenant of eternal peace instead. He didn't come to make peace by taking life, but by giving his life that we might have peace with God. In fact, Paul is thinking about this reality. In Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, It is not just that Jesus has handed us peace. No, he says, Jesus is our peace. I love what he says there in verses 13 to 18. You can look there in Ephesians 2, 13 to 18. A glorious text in all of Scripture. And here's what he says. But now in Christ, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now there's a bunch here, but let me just quickly unpack realities about peace that we find in this text. For one, Jesus himself is our peace. Our peace is a person who forever lives to intercede for us to make us right with God, to make us reconciled to God. See, Jesus is with you for your peace, and you have peace with God. Do you catch that? Peace is not something that's been handed off to you. Peace is something that you are united with in Christ by faith. Second, both those far from God and near to God here, the Jews and Gentiles, did not have peace with God. Do you catch that? But Jesus didn't come for those people that didn't have peace and to acknowledge those who already had peace. He said, nobody had peace. They all needed Jesus. 
See, peace with God required the same peace from God for every human. That's a miracle that cannot be attributed to human effort. It was all of God's grace and mercy that we have this peace. Third, the blood of Christ brought Ephesian Christians peace with God and one another. Did you notice that in the conversation? Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, I'm confused. Like he's talking about Jesus coming and dying to reconcile us to God, but then he's talking about this whole like horizontal relationship that's been changed by the power of the cross. And what he's saying is, is that if you've been reconciled to the head Jesus Christ, then you've been reconciled to the body, those saints who have been purchased by his blood. There are ways in which the reality that we have been reconciled to God means that we can be reconciled with even our enemies. The Jews saw Gentiles as unclean, enmity. They were enmity at war with one another. And he says, I have brought them together. There is hope now, I believe, getting a little ahead of myself, but for marriages that feel hopeless because Jesus has died to bring us close to God. Moving on, fourth, Jesus preached peace through his sacrifice. Did you notice that? It says that Jesus preached this peace. Jesus is the only way to true and lasting peace. And the word will divide those who believe from those who don't. But it is a message that centers on the fact that peace is real and available in Christ. And fifth, the same Holy Spirit gives all Christians access to the Father. I mean, here's what all of this means. The triune God sent Jesus to die that Ephesian Christians could have peace with God and one another. It's a new world that is beginning here, a new creation that is breaking out. I think we could argue that even as we despair the brokenness all around us, this text tells us that God is even more for our peace than we are. Do you love peace? Not just the idea of peace, but peace is an an attribute and perfection of God. We need to love it. We need to make our hearts love peace. Ask it to love peace. So how do we become better peacemakers? I believe some lines need to be drawn bravely and our speech should always display humility, but we need to understand that peacemaking isn't an optional amenity for Christianity. Peacemakers are in a good place. They are flourishing with regard to the kingdom of heaven. So here are six thoughts about peacemaking. Six thoughts. First, peacemakers pray. You know, when you look at struggles with God, like our sins, or with our families, or friends, or spouses, or even concerns we have about politics, or what's going on internationally with Afghanistan, that should propel us to pray to God for peace. That's kind of step one. Now, why do I say that? Well, because... If you were just looking at the world and just listening to the world, it can feel like peace is impossible. And so what we need is kind of like an ostrich to take our head out of the sand and look up to God. Uh, there's an example of this in Philippians 4, 6-7 to where Paul is speaking to these Philippian Christians and he says, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving Present your requests to God and catch this promise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Did you catch that? 
There is a kind of peace that here Paul is speaking of that transcends human understanding. Things look chaotic. It looks impossible. Is there hope? Pray. You will get a transcendent hope from God that peace really is possible. Now, God might not change your circumstances. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that God would change my circumstances, and he did a lot more heart change than circumstance change. But he will give us a transcendent peace that guards our hearts in those circumstances. And where else do we go for peace? And Galatians 5 tells us that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. There's nowhere to go except to God. So pray for power to be a peacemaker and not blow stuff up due to your fleshly tendencies. That's my, my prayer often. Jesus, help me not blow anything up. Help me to bring more construction than destruction. Second, peacemaking is broad in application. In other words, when Jesus says you need to be a peacemaker, he's not just saying, just be a peacemaker with easy people, with your family, not that they're the same category, and with other Christians in your local church. No, I think Paul picks up on this kind of thing in Romans 12, 18 to 21 about how broad the application of peacemaking is. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, what's fascinating here is you, you see a number of things as he goes on down to verse 21 about the nature of peacemaking. First, did you notice that he says, if possible, and so far as it depends? I'm just glad he added that. Like, that you, you understand that you can give yourself to peace with others, but you are not able to restore every relationship this side of Jesus coming back. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, seek to make peace with all men. You know, you might forgive someone for a great wrong and never experience the fullness of reconciliation until Jesus returns. Or another person might simply refuse to seek peace. Uh, I take situations like these to be some of the saddest in my life, where you really are engaged in trying to seek peace, and the other person just walks away. Or second, leaving peaceably with all implies that this is true in all contexts. In other words, peace should be the rule in every sphere, right? So, so as a citizen, we're not looking to be disruptive, now, that's complicated. You need to think through that. I mean, our country was kind of started by a disruption, but it's another conversation for another day. We should seek to have peace with our friends, with our spouses, with our children, parents, coworkers, church members, pickleball teammates, the guy that calls you and says that, you know, he's upcharging you on something that you didn't want in the first place. Like we're trying to seek peace in all of our relationships as much as dependent on us. Not only that, we find that Paul is saying in Romans 12 that peacemaking means you will need to trust God when you are wronged. He goes on to talk about the fact that we need to trust God as our avenger. Not every wrong this side of heaven is going to be righted until Jesus comes back. Your dignity might take a hit that will not be righted until Jesus gets back. You ever been in that place? Man, I just... I feel like my dignity's taking a hit that needs to be righted right now, and I'm willing to like shed blood for it. And Paul says that's not always going to happen. There's some who have lost reputations that will not be restored, as one author says, until Jesus returns, and then they will be raised up. And also, did you catch forth that Paul goes on to say that peaceable living means doing good 
even to those who are evil? I mean, the text ends in, in verse 21 talking about doing good to those who have done evil to you. Now, that's another, like, gear that I struggle to get into, you know? Like, it's one thing to say, I forgive you, but you're kind of not around me and I'm not around you, and I'm just going to trust that Jesus is going to come back and fix this. It's another thing to say that my posture should be to be a blessing to you, even despite what's happened. Now, that, too, is complicated. I don't think this is saying that this looks the same for, say, someone who's been abused, that your job is to go out and start doing good for your abuser. I'm not, I don't think that's what that's saying. But I think what it's saying is that as much as you can do good to those who have done wrong to you. See, peacemaking requires a brazen humility and supernatural spirit-empowered strength. I mean, doing good to your, the person who's wronged you is not lex talionis. It's not an eye for an eye. That's something more that requires otherworldly power that is only found in the Holy Spirit. Third, peacemakers evidence fruits of the Spirit in increasing measure. Now, we need to make peace, not war. And we need to mature in our peacemaking. In fact, I think the more that you seek to make peace with others, having those difficult conversations, praying, seeking counsel, the better that you will be equipped to actually make peace. But let me encourage you to do this. Don't add fuel to the fire of division. It reminds me of my dad. One time um, I was watching this scene that was almost like slow motion. He had this big can that he was burning leaves in, and it was on fire. It wasn't fast enough. So he took a, a cup full of gasoline. He just walks over, and I probably should have said something, but I was just like, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And he threw it on the fire, and like this, the fire pops out, and he barely gets away, only losing his eyebrows and his eyelashes and some of his arm hair. I was like, you know, you probably shouldn't throw gas on a fire. If people are tense and hot, you don't need to necessarily say everything you're thinking in that moment, probably. You probably should take a, a second and think. The reason I say that is, is because I think that right now it feels like we live in a culture where Facebook and Twitter has been turned into platforms to have public debates and to say the angriest things that we can say and say the most polarizing things that we can say. And the more polarizing things we say, the more likes and hits and shares we get. And that's not Christian. Like, that's not the place to have these sensitive discussions and care for people's hearts. I would say the more sensitive the, the conversation, the more important, like if it's doctrinal division, the more that you should have more of your senses involved, like seeing people eyeball to eyeball, that's a great mechanism to protect you from saying dumb stuff. You alone at night, late, with a computer screen and nobody around, not a good way to make peace with others. There was one pastor I was reading about that likened our age to Samson's foxtails which were united and tied together only to set the Philistines' corn on fire. And it seems like those are the kinds of unities that we see today. Unities to destroy rather than build up. It makes me sad. I remember two decades ago when I was in seminary when it felt like everybody in the evangelical world was coming together for the gospel. And today it seems like everybody's trying to build a platform on fires and tearing people down. But catch this. I believe the more that you seek to make peace, the more that you will grow in this fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Use it, grow in it, strengthen it. 
We seek to bring peace, but we also don't seek to add fuel to it. We want to watch our speech. We want to be careful about what we say on social media. Fourth, peacemaking at least means evangelism. Now, Jesus came to reconcile men and women, boys and girls, to God. And here's what that means. I should be more concerned that my kids have peace with God than that they disrupt my peace and quiet. Does that make sense? Fifth, peacemaking means love Jesus most. Matthew 10, 34 to 39, you might be thinking like, well, maybe Jesus means peace at all cost. But in Matthew 10, 34 to 39, he says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute, you're the ultimate peacemaker. You called us to be peacemakers. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So don't miss it here. Seeking to be a peacemaker means that Jesus says you will lose relationships. Some will disdain you for seeking to love Christ. Not everyone is reconciled to God, and not everyone will be reconciled to you uh, or by you to others. So sometimes you will forgive people, but not experience the fullness of that reconciliation that you long for. It requires patience. And peacemaking means discomfort. Another example of this is in Matthew 18. Even in the church, we find that there are times when there's not peace amongst the people of God. And in Matthew 18, Jesus says, look, in the church... If there is someone who has an issue, then that person needs to take it to the person that they believe has offended them. Alone, in private. Talk about it. And then he goes on to say, if that doesn't work, bring some witnesses. If there are no witnesses, then you know, that's a problem. We can talk about that later. But if that doesn't work, you take it to the church and eventually you cut them off as a church because that is someone who is living in unrepentant sin. Now, why do you do that? It's because you're saying, I don't think you understand the peace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. You need, to be an un, you need to be a repentant sinner who trusts God and his son Christ and is repentant of sin and loves God more than his sin. Six, peacemaking does not compromise the truth. Now, some of you are like, man, you should have started there, right? Like, you begin with peacemaking does not compromise on the truth because we will die for the truth. And I think that is completely true. And yet at the same time, that's complicated. For one, are all truths the same? I don't think all truths are necessarily worth dying over. So for instance, if I'm in a country where they say professing faith by Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that means that we're going to take your life, then I cannot denounce Christ. But if someone were to come to me and say, eschatologically, is Jesus going to be here literally for a thousand year reign? And if so, can you show me the particulars of, do you believe in a tribulation and what that looks like? Would you die for that? I'm like, no, I have intellectual curiosity about that, right? If my life is on the line, it's not the same thing. If my child's life is on the line. And when we think about the nature of the truth, where are people in the process with that truth? Are they working through the truth? Is there space for you to help them? You know, I hope that we're a church where we can be patient and patiently work with people 
through difficult doctrine so that they can grow in understanding who God is and grow in looking more like him. So we need to be able to see, when we think about the nature of the truth, that every biblical truth does not carry the same weight, that not every wrong is worth chasing down. We need to forbear with one another. I don't want to be a, a sort of whack-of-mole church. Like, did you hear what they said doctrinally? Fix that right now. And you and you, I don't want to be that place or that people. And we also don't want to cause people to act against their consciences. And this is a point that I don't see talked about a lot in the church that I think is so important. The kind of peace that we're seeing breaking out is not like the Roman peace where we say, you better be quiet if you know what's good for you. That's not a way for pastors to treat their people. That's not a way for husbands to treat their wives. You know, we are humans that have been created in the image of God. We bear the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with him. Uh, We are called to obey Christ And we're called to have a good conscience. And what that means is, is that we need to educate our consciences. We need to inform our consciences. We need to speak truth to our consciences and make sure we are making decisions and feel good about those decisions as to what we understand from the word of God. But we are not looking as pastors to suppress people on non-essential things. And I'm not even saying these non-essential things aren't important things. But we want to make sure that we're a place where people are able to have free consciences, to mature in their consciences, and that we're patient as we all grow together in our understanding to understand right and wrong, what's good and best according to God's word. Second, my second point, my shortest one, should be the longest, but it's this, because they shall be called sons of God. Think about that. Is peacemaking important to you? Do you want to be a son a daughter of God, peacemakers are sons of God. So you, you want to be a peacemaker because of this. You are a child of God, not an enemy. I mean, this makes sense that we would be called sons of God because we are peacemakers. Think about it. We just talked about how Hebrews thirteen twenty calls God the God of peace. And we were told that Jesus is the Prince of Peace from the city of peace. And peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is why the 19th century Baptist preacher John Broadus said this. He said, there is no more godlike work than peacemaking. If you want to look like God and God's kids look like him, then you're going to be a peacemaker. God's kids, they look like him. They carry his traits, his perfections. Now, you might ask, when shall we become sons of God? Well, all of our spiritual birth certificates say that we are children of the, pe- the prince of this world, not the prince of peace left to ourselves. We are in Adam before we are in Christ. Uh, Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John eight forty four. It's there that he says that their father is the devil and their will is to do his will, which is murder and not stand for the truth. That's our default. But Jesus is God's true son, and by faith we become adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. I love how Romans 8.14 says this. Paul explains, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So by faith, we are sons and daughters of the living God and heirs of all the promises that he gives to his kids. So later, Jesus is going to teach his kids to pray. And he does this in Matthew 6. He says, pray this way. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means exercising this kind of godlike peace. Now, by faith, we are sons and daughters of the living God. And I love what J.I. Packer has to say about this reality that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. As he is looking at the Bible and knowing God, one of the most read, well-read uh, books in Christian history, he says this about adoption. He explains that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing, but adoption is the highest blessing. Does that make sense? You, you don't get to adoption without justification, but he says at the end of the day, if we want to talk about what's marvelous, it's the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And this is what he says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. You know, we're not just inmates who have been told that we are now free, free to go about our business. No, we are not simply justified. We are adopted. He says this is higher than justification. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. That relationship is one in which God is for you and he is for me. It's a relationship in which nothing seen or unseen can separate us from the love of God. It is a relationship that is eternal, that promises us life everlasting, that has given us an inheritance that means that you and me, we will never die. We will live with him joyfully, peacefully, forever. A kind of peace that this world can't even imagine or dream of. In fact, there's a, a beautiful image of this peace that Isaiah 11, 6 to 9 gives us. And this is what he says in closing. He says, On that day the wolf shall lie with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall eat them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Can you imagine a day when you can leave your child to be babysat by a bear? And where you can trust your kid to play fetch with a snake. There's a day that's coming where there's a, a kind of peace unlike anything that we have ever experienced. No divisions, no fights, and that's the peace that we long for. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we come before you as uh, your children in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help to make us peacemakers. We confess that we don't make peace as we should. Sometimes it seems as though we, we make more fights than peace and so, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would fall on us, that you would help us to be a people who reflect your character of being a, a peaceful God. Father, we also pray for those who are here that are not sons of God, who have not put their faith in Jesus, who uh, do not have peace and have no hope of peace. Father, we pray that they would see today that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, that he has come for them to give them new life and hope and a peace that this world cannot offer. Lord, help them to put their faith in him, we do pray. Amen.
Listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you. So, if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, Please feel free to email us at askhsgm@gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Provided by ETS Ministry. 
Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You can go up a couple pages to the book of Nam. We're going to look at chapter 3, and this gives us a description of the wicked city, Nahum. We see the Lord saying to this Nineveh, this wicked city, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. It's a violent, lying, wicked city. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses, browning chariots... Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift your skirts up over your face and show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your disgrace. And I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say Nineveh is devastated. And the Lord God did bring this devastation upon Nineveh. They were destroyed. And now all there is is ruins there. But they were a wicked, bloody city full of lies and spiritual harlotry that influenced the nations, including Israel. Even though they hated them, they were influenced by them. Certainly the city was like their father, the devil, who was a murderer and the father of lies, right? Now in chapter 3, we looked at this last week, but the Ninevites themselves, when they actually repented, declared their own wickedness. Let's turn up a little bit to Jonah chapter 3. This is a wicked city. But I praise God for this account because it shows you that when people truly repent, they don't whitewash their sin. They say, this is how we are. It's evil. It's wrong. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city of one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. What an amazing statement. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes, a symbol of humility. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. That was their wickedness. They were a violent, wicked people. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They understood the truth of God's anger towards them, which was the foundation for their salvation. The Ninevites were a wicked people. They were a violent people. They were the enemy of Israel. They were the epitome of worldliness. Okay, so it's clear God is commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim against it because of their wickedness. Well, before we move to Jonah's response, let's grab a few principles from here that hopefully we can learn from. First of all, nothing passes by God, right? He says their wickedness has come up before me. 
No one apart from Christ will get away with any sin. Do you remember when we went through the book of Ezekiel and we looked in chapters 8 and 9 and we saw the tour that no one wants to take as God took Ezekiel on a tour of Israel's secret sins in the temple? And we hear the recorded words of those as they're doing their wicked, dark deeds. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders in the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Do you see this? Each man in the room with, of his own carved images. We have children here today, but similar to issues that people get in trouble with in the computer. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord does not see Notice they're committing their sin in the dark. The Lord doesn't see. Yahweh, the all-knowing, great I am, doesn't see. And isn't this what we say in our hearts when we conveniently forget God and turn to do evil in His sight? Maybe we don't say it in those exact words, but we act it out. The Lord doesn't see. But He does see. Men, He sees when you choose to defile yourselves and your marriages on the Internet. He sees that. Women, he sees when you complain and fret and worry. He sees that. All of us, he sees our sin. This is man's problem. This is mankind's problem. That we do not truly believe God is watching everything and he will hold us to account for everything. Every thought and every deed. A couple of scriptures I want to share. First Chronicles 28, verse 9, as David is exhorting his son, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. What an exhortation. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice do me escapes notice of my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Concerning the word of the Lord, a familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees everything. The Ninevites' wickedness had come up before him. Ecclesiastes 12.12, in contrast to focusing on the words given by one shepherd, the word of God, he says in 12.12, but beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Jeremiah 16, 17, 4, My eyes are on their ways, and they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Folks, God sees everything, and if you are not saved right now, you will be held accountable for everything, and your wickedness is before Him. And if you are saved, God sees everything, but praise the Lord, we can confess it and be forgiven, and it is put as far as the east as the west. But He sees everything. Non-believer, you'll be judged. Eternally, believer, 
we will stand before the Lord, the judgment seat, not for condemnation, but for reward or loss of reward, because he sees everything. Are you saying in your heart the Lord doesn't see? First point I wanted to point out. Secondly, just a brief principle. We need to share the truth of where man stands before God in his sin when we share the gospel. We need to share that. We need to share where they stand. Another point I just want to point out briefly, Jonah was not called upon to learn the Ninevites' culture. Jonah, I have a five-week missionary school for you. You must learn about the Ninevites. You must learn their ways and then go to them and build a bridge so that you may share the truth. God says, get up, go, and proclaim the Word of God. Last principle I want to point out, serving, more often than not, it is unpleasant and difficult. This was not an easy task that God was asking Jonah to do. It was a long journey, and he was going to people that hated him, that he most likely in sinfulness hated because he was so unlike God. This was a difficult task. Often serving is brutal, it is difficult, and sometimes we don't do it because it's hard. But we're going to see the alternative is more difficult It is more difficult to disobey than to obey. Now one caveat here too I want to share before we move on. Jonah was told specifically who to go to and what to say. And I'm not telling us to do the exact same thing. Don't take this message and run to Portland and say, yet 40 days Portland will be overthrown. This was given to Jonah. Now God gives us insight from his word how we are to be now at this time. But it's from his word, not from our own wisdom. Okay, so we see, first of all, the clear commands to Jonah, really clear. Arise, go, and proclaim against Nineveh. Just really clear. Now, what's Jonah's response? We're going to see he exerts great effort to disobey God. Great effort to disobey. And, folks, I believe we'll see in our lives that we exert great effort at times to disobey God. Where the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, But Jonah. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice, first of all, Jonah disobeys God. He rises up, same word, to flee rather than rising up to obey. But Jonah rose up. And it's kind of a shame that at least the NASB doesn't translate this arose. It's the same word used earlier where God says arise in in a command. And here it's the same word basically. But Jonah arose. He did the first thing, but he didn't arise to obey. He arose to flee. But Jonah He arose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish was some 2,000 miles the opposite direction. It was on the coast of Spain, way out there, a long journey, almost as far as you could get away from Nineveh. Folks, it took great effort on Jonah's part to disobey God, and he had to plan great effort to disobey God. And notice he's ultimately fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And You see that in the beginning of 3 and the end of 3, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But notice his great effort to disobey. He goes down to Joppa. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. 
and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Jonah most likely takes off from Galilee. Remember, he was from Gath, Hepfer, 2 Kings 14. That's the Galilee region. He most likely was there at that time, and he took off from Galilee. Instead of going northeast 500 miles, he went the other direction, some 50 miles down to Joppa. Notice Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Jonah's going down, we're going to see. Later on we see he goes down into the depths. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, I descended, or literally, I went down. Same word. Jonah was going down. I don't know if that's the inspired author's point, but folks, if you choose to disobey God, you're going down in discipline. And we certainly see that with Jonah. Now notice whenever you want to disobey, and we know this in our lives, there is always a convenient avenue to do so. Some have called this portion the doctrine of Satan's providence. Notice, he finds a ship going to Tarshish. Just so happens, Jonah wants to go to Tarshish, and there it is, a ship going to Tarshish. Brother and sister, Jonah's working hard to disobey God. And some of you are working hard to disobey God, and Satan's right there ready to help. There's an avenue for you to go the other way. Seems like all the time, right? It's very convenient, but as we see, it's hard work to disobey God. So Jonah pays the fare and goes on board. Middle of verse 3, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Folks, we usually can accomplish what we set our minds to in the flesh, right? We usually can. Apart from God intervening and thwarting us, we can usually accomplish it, and Jonah accomplishes it. He gets on the ship going to Tarshish.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.